Welcome to the Kaleo Life Podcast. You can find more resources for gospel living and information about us by going to our website, kaleo.community. Enjoy today's sermon. Good evening. Uh, welcome back to Kaleo for all those new or familiar faces. I have not met you. I'm Chris Cornish. I'm on staff here and I help out from time to time whenever I can. And apparently this time I'm supposed to preach. So uh, if you want to go ahead and open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 1, that's uh, going to be a familiar passage to folks if you've been here since the beginning of our Advent series. Um, uh, but as a reminder, we've been going through uh, a series looking at Jesus as prophet, priest, and now king. And uh, Hebrews 1, um, we're actually going to start in verses 8 uh, through 9. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So we have a wonderful king. His name is Jesus. And unlike many of the kings of history, this is a king who is compassionate and truly concerned for his people and rules with absolute authority, uh, one who will never abandon his people and forsake us, one who will never be thwarted by any enemy whatsoever. And we have a king who gives us a purpose, meaning in our lives, that we can find rest in. The kingship of Jesus gives us this meaning and purpose here on earth without enslaving us to tasks or burdening us with the results of our toil. Instead, we get to be free under him. But we are created to be ruled and to rule, as it says in Genesis chapter 2. When God made us, he created us to rule the earth, but underneath of his lordship. And so we're going to be looking tonight at what it means to be ruled by Jesus as king and what that implies for us as we are leaders and kings within our own sphere of influence, or women queens, if you will. Uh, but to understand this, we need to see what Scripture says about what a king is and understand that everyone is ruled by something and that ultimately there is true freedom under the kingship of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would give us wisdom to understand your word, And also that we would learn what it would mean to submit to the true king, the king of kings. And have his reign and power move in and through us. So that everyone would bow and worship Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Growing up in California, uh, there was a saying that a lot of my friends said in high school. And it was, that is king. Whatever that was, it was the best of something. Uh, for a lot of people, it was a, a, like a new cell phone or a game system like the PlayStation 2, because that's how old I am. The PlayStation 2 was new in high school. Uh, for me personally, uh, I was in choir, and in my high school, the choir was actually of more fame than our football team. And don't get me wrong, we had a pretty good football team. We went to state pretty often and all that sort of thing. They have plenty of trophies of their own. But you walked into the choir room and you looked on the back cabinets and all you saw was 
trophies piled. You look on the walls, and all the walls are covered in plaques from different awards won at competitions globally. And that was only what was like up until five years ago. The rest of them were just stacked in the storage room gathering dust. And there was big stacks. Uh, and in choir, there was this one particular group, the 10 elite students called the Vocal Music Workshop. And man, you wanted to be a part of that. Uh, and, but to get a part of that was a hard, hard, hard thing. See, I got to be a part of the chamber choir, which was the step underneath, and all the Vocal Music Workshop people were in that as well. But it was an incredibly difficult trial to get into the Vocal Music Workshop, and I never made it. And in all of my attempts to do so, I began to feel a bit belittled by the ones who did. And I wonder how often we find ourselves feeling that gap between those who have achieved that status, that honor, and we become envious of them. And it, at worst, we desire to take control of something and to become the one in position of power there or maybe at best, we simply yearn for something more righteous, something better, something that enables us to thrive even if we haven't attained that position of status. But if it, when it's improperly, when kingship, however it's expressed in our lives, is not brought in, under the authority of King Jesus, the king of kings, sin will distort it and turn it into something that he never intended for it to be. And so we need to understand what a king is so that we would learn what, how we are supposed to act, how we are supposed to lead. In fact, we were created for the purpose of cultivation, of leading in such a way so that the world around us, our sphere of influence would thrive, meeting our needs and the needs of others, not to dominate it, to abuse it for our own pleasure, for our own status. So please open up to Psalm 72, is what uh, Jordan had read earlier. If you remember what that page number is, it should be awfully easy. I am not using a few Bibles, so I, I can't tell you. Um, but while you're turning there, I want you to think through uh, what the word king brings to your mind uh, royalness, regalness, majesty. Those are some words that kind of bring, come to mind. But as I think through Earth's history, power and conquerors, greed, subjugation, things like this are unfortunately the hallmark of kings throughout history. I hope you understand, hear the negative connotation in all of these things. Sin corrupts the power that we have been given. And so we need scripture to teach us what kingship is supposed to be. And in Psalm 72, we see that King David, towards the end of his reign, as Solomon is preparing to, step, er, to sit on the throne, David prays that God would give him uh, it gives King Solomon some certain attributes that are hallmarks of what a king is supposed to be according to scripture. And so we pick up in verse 1 here. Give the king your judgments, O God, 
and your righteousness to the king's son. May he judge your people with righteousness and your afflicted with justice. Let the mountains bring peace to the people and the hills in righteousness. May he vindicate the afflicted of the people, save the children of the needy, and crush the oppressor. See here, David is praying that Solomon would be righteous and that he would execute proper judgment and that uh, he would care for the whole well-being of society and that he would be a defender of the powerless. But we must pick up on a nuance that is really important that David is asking God to provide Solomon with these character attributes. He is not saying, God, Solomon has these things, bless his reign. He's saying, Solomon needs these things, and they need to come from you and only from you. Then and only then will these things that I want to be true of my son will be true. And as you continue to go through the psalm, you begin to see the descriptions of a perfect king, one who illustrates all of these character attributes without flaw. And we'll get to that here in a moment. But I do want us to now turn over to Deuteronomy 17 um, and see what the law of Moses has to say about a king. You know, going to the law, we typically find a lot of very practical sort of instructions um, about worship and such. And I figured in a similar vein, we might see some instructions given to the king about how to rule and govern uh, the people of Israel. And, uh, you know, what is the king supposed to do? Is he supposed to be building fortified cities for his people? Is he supposed to be um, looking after the economy of the, the cities of the nation of Israel? Is he supposed to be doing X, Y, and Z? What is, what is he supposed to do? What does the law of Moses command? And it kind of surprised me. And I wonder if you'll pick up on the same things as we begin to read here, and starting in verse 14. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and live in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. One from among your countrymen you shall set as king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply forces for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply forces. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandments to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Starting at the top of this passage, we see, number one, it, uh, this almost seems like a dove. It needs to be an Israelite. It's going to be the king of Israel. It should be an Israelite. But there is something unspoken here that it should be remembered. At this point in history, the Israelites are the only ones who have an understanding of who the true God is, the only ones who worship him. And so this begins to show us that God cares greatly that the king 
would be leading his people properly in worship. And then the very next requirement is that it, that would be a king that's chosen by God. So he's saying, you don't get to choose the king for yourself. This needs to be my chosen, my anointed one who reigns underneath my authority. And so we see here that the king is supposed to be a vice-regent of God. That means a king underneath a king. And that sets up God as being the king of kings. It implies that this leader of the nation needs to be going to his boss for commands. It, now we get into some other things that really kind of are surprising. It says not to go and acquire horses nor go to Egypt for the horses. And if you don't understand why it's talking about horses, is not that God has something against horses. He made the horses. God loves horses. Like my daughter loves horses. But horses in that day were a military thing. And typically the army who showed up with the most horses and chariots, they won the battle. And God is saying none of that. You're not going to acquire many horses for yourself. You're not going to go to Egypt, who I just set you free from, to acquire horses. Because doing so would show self-reliance or resubmitting yourself to the people I literally just set you free from. And above all, it would show that you're rejecting the premise of God being their protector and defender. Then it says not to acquire many wives. Well, number one, polygamy is never spoken of well in the Bible. I know there are some certain subsects of uh, cults out there that say polygamy is just fine. Well, it's never spoken of well in the Bible. And even where it does speak of it neutrally, if you look into the stories of that person's life, the polygamy only ever caused problems. But I don't think that's really what it's getting at here. Again, I believe this to be more of a military sort of thing because kings would oftentimes make marriage alliances with foreign countries by marrying the daughter of a foreign king. And remember, it's supposed to be a, the king is supposed to be an Israelite because Israelites were the ones who knew and worshipped the true God. Now bringing a wife in from a foreign country and many wives in from many foreign countries, bringing their own agendas of their fathers with them, and bringing their own kings, or uh, sorry, their own gods and worship with them as well. And you can see how the king's heart might be turned away. Then it says to not acquire much gold and silver. Uh, this could be a couple of things. It could be greed. Obviously, if the leader is motivated by greed, it's probably a disqualification, I would think, because that shows that they're only looking after for their, their own self, not the well-being of others. But it also can be something else. Uh, it could be the seeking to prosper the entire kingdom's wealth. And another part of Deuteronomy actually speaks really negatively against this. Because, again, what this begins to do is money is power, even in that day, just as it is today. And it would take the whole nation into either self-reliance we are our own authority. We've got the power to make our own decisions, and we don't need to go to anyone for anything. Or that we just simply don't need God. Or we're going to rely 
purely on the king and his ability to prosper us. Again, all these things show a lack of reliance upon God as being their king, the one who is their protector, their authority, their defender, their judge. But what is the king to do? He is to make an approved copy of the law. To do so was a very rigorous task. Not only did you have to write it all out, you had to write it out perfectly. If you got to the very last page, the very last line, and you made one wrong stroke with the pen and a line was slightly messed up, well, one, there was no erasers, and two, you had to throw away the entire scroll and start over again. In fact, they burned it with fire. That's a, that's a Bible joke. Burn things with fire and you know, kill, or stone things with stones. But the king is also to read it every day, to meditate upon it, to be transformed by it, to learn the fear of God from it, which is the beginning of wisdom according to Proverbs. And he is to obey it, and he is to be humbled by it, so that he would not see himself as being above his brothers and sisters, that he would be equal to them. And in so too, he would receive a great blessing for the establishment of his kingdom. But all of Israel's kings failed this. Every single last one. Doing, going through how all of them failed would be a very long, exhaustive list. But even the righteous ones, the ones that we think of as being wonderful kings, like King David, he had many wives, and wives from many countries. Solomon says that he made uh, gold as common as silver, and silver as common as bronze. Hezekiah did the same sort of thing as Solomon did. And for many generations, the law was lost to the king, so they certainly never wrote it down and learned from it. And this is why God never entrusted ultimate authority to the kings of Israel, never entrusted to them the responsibility to bring peace, prosperity, protection, righteousness, and, and true justice. He reserved these things for himself because God is the only one who can do these things without being converted through sin. Without being pulled away by personal ambition. These passages, both Deuteronomy 17 and Psalm 72, teach us something that we really ought to meditate upon. That God is more concerned with the faithfulness of those who rule and have authority than he is with their leadership prowess. God doesn't care how good of a leader you are. God doesn't care how wonderful of a counselor you are to, to an advisor to people in great positions of authority. He doesn't care, frankly, how great, fantastic, amazing of a parent you are. What he cares about is your faithfulness to him. Because if you are faithful to him, you will find that these character attributes that make you these wonderful things will be granted to you fulfilling the prayer that David has for Solomon. Sin distorts the authority that has been given to us. And it's only natural for us to rule over something after all we were created to do so. But because we rebelled against being ruled by God to be our king, our ability to rule rightly has been ruined. 
And that is something that we need to really understand that in within ourselves, our ability to rule rightly has been ruined because of sin. Growing up, I was looked down upon. I was the weird dork. I have loved Pokemon well beyond these years, the, the little kid years. I still loved Pokemon when I was in high school. And at that point in time, unlike now, now it's still kind of cool to like Pokemon, but back then it was not. Uh, I was also abused pretty badly by my dad and had a really low self-esteem. And so one of the things that I craved the most was respect. And I still struggle with this from time to time. He comes and rears his ugly head and bites me with his fangs. And I, I will crave it. I will want people to give me respect. And in so doing, it becomes my king. I will serve that king, whatever it takes to get respect. And if you think back at Shiloh, when Shannon and I were on staff there during our first summer, of how this really did show up in a, a bad way. And thankfully, by God's grace and mercy, he revealed it to me about halfway through this first session of leading CIT. If you don't know what that is, at Shiloh Bible Camp, they have a three-week thing where high school students will come in and they'll do all the cleaning and uh, the dishes and cleaning up of puke and plunging toilets and all that sort of thing around camp. So all the background things that keep camp moving and chugging along. And we would lead that for uh, three weeks at a time. And, but on the off season, that was Shannon and I's responsibility. When guest groups would come in, we would take care of all that sort of cleaning and sort of stuff. And when these kids came in during summer, I wanted to be respected by them. And so that began to elevate me up above them, to rule them merely as a boss, issuing them orders, go do this and you go do that. And I expected that they would do it well. In fact, I expected that they would do it more than well. I expected that they would do it perfectly. And whenever it's pointed out that they failed, well, I began to question myself. And eventually, that began to transform into me losing respect for myself and feeling as if I've lost utter control of all things. And it would drown me. Respect become my king, and the performance of others was my friend that I ruled over. See, it is a good thing to be respected, to strive for excellence in everything that you do. I'm not belittling these things. You ought to be known as being one of the most kind people ever. You should be known to raise your children to be wonderful, respectful people that can uh, contribute to society. You should strive for growing in wisdom and serving the people who are around you with kindness and gladness and with generosity. All of these things are spoken of incredibly well within Scripture, and we are exhorted to do them on a regular basis. In fact, we are told that we have no excuse for not doing these things. But when your performance becomes your meaning, then those good works have become your king. Some of you might think, oh, I, I like to be 
a self-made man, or I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. And you have this illusion in your mind that you are the king of your own destiny. But don't forget, we are created with a nature that says we will be ruled by something, and we will rule over something. And in this illusion that you are a self-made man, you set, you set your work ethic up as your king. And you will serve it. And, but what happens when circumstances come outside of your control? And make all of your efforts irrelevant. I've had a wonderful opportunity to work alongside Simon and Sandra in the homeless ministry. And uh, I've got to talk with them and hear their stories. And many of them were people who've met this description of being wonderful hard workers who had a job, who had a wife, who had a house. And through some out-of-control circumstance that they could not predict or handle, they ended up homeless and having their lives shattered. And they've learned something that maybe some of us in this room have not yet learned. They were never in control. Something else was. They were under the authority of circumstances. And they couldn't escape it. And these same people, as you talk with them, these people who once had this incredible work ethic now despair over the idea of ever putting effort into anything else ever again. Because why try? What does it matter? Parents. Most of us in this room are parents. If you set parenthood up as your king, then the performance of your children means everything to you. And if they ever fail in some way, whether that be in school with grades, with their career, if they ever were to become homeless, maybe they fail morally and end up being arrested or they end up addicted to drugs or whatever it might be, then if you've set up parenthood as being your ultimate ideal, the thing that you serve, the thing that you have strived for, you've, that you've poured all of your life and effort and energy into, then their failure means you have failed. And bare minimum, it has you questioning everything you've ever done, your, your meaning in life. That worst is something you never recover from because it's so crippling. I'm an owner of a small business. I know several of us in this room are as well. What happens if you make your, your company everything? You will sacrifice your family for the success of your company, for your business. And then when it fails, it fails. You've lost everything. Not only your business, but you've already lost your family. We will be ruled by something. Don't get under the illusion that you are not ruled by something. You are. And it's probably something you're, not, you're blind to. I find myself being ruled by things that being blind to. I can be blind to my own work ethic that will cause me to work far longer hours on my shop than I ought to. You can ask my wife how often that happens and how often I need a reminder. This way of living is tiring. And the good news is that we were not created to reign in such a way. Uh, and even better news is that Jesus shows us how to submit to God as king. 
We, have, we know that Jesus is king, but when he was here walking on earth with his disciples, he demonstrated what it means to submit to God as being king. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 say, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. While having full authority, Jesus submitted. And that's incredible news for us. He submitted. We see in the Gospels, so many times his friends, the disciples, come up to him and say, you ought to do things this way. What are you doing, Jesus? This is the wrong way. And he tells them to get lost. He even tells Simon Peter one time, get behind me, Satan. His family, worried that he has lost his mind because of the things that he is saying and doing that are clearly presenting himself as being the Messiah, try and get him to stop. And Jesus' response is to not stop. We see that Jesus never bows to the pressures of what other people think and say that he ought to do. But what happens when these sort of pressures come on us? I know I can grow impatient, anxious, and worried, and then out of that, formulate how I'm going to act. And in that moment, I step away from Jesus as being my king to whatever this nebulous thing is that I'm worried about being my king, and it drives me to act in order to satisfy it. But Jesus shows us the better way. But thankfully, although he's an incredible example, he is not merely an example. To quote uh, Major Thomas, who is an evangelist from post-World War II era, if Jesus came to live a perfect life and then depart to go up to heaven, then we would be doubly condemned by the law of Moses that, death, that tells us the perfect life that we are expected to live and by the very life of Jesus himself. But thankfully, Jesus did not come to merely live on earth, demonstrate a perfect life, and then ascend to heaven. He died first. And this is the story of Christmas. It tells the tale of a baby born to die. An interesting image that is lost in English translations is that when Jesus is born and wrapped in swaddling cloths, swaddling cloths, we think of wrapping a baby in a nice warm blanket. In Hebrew culture, that's what you wrap the dead body in. Jesus was born and wrapped in death. And he died so that he might reign over us. So that we would be empowered by his authority in and through us. So that we would be set free from the burden of responsibility over the outcome of our actions. Set free from the burden of the outcome of the callings that we have. Parents, you are called to be a wonderful parent. Business owners, you're called to be an incredible steward. Whatever you are, 
whatever your calling might be, if it's placed underneath the kingship of Jesus and underneath the rule and authority that he has given to you, then and only then will it be something that sets you free. Continuing on in Philippians, it says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Because of his submission, he was exalted to the highest throne. So let us exalt him and submit ourselves underneath his kingship, underneath his authority. Flip back with me to uh, Psalm 72 if, you're, if you don't still have it there. Um, this is where the psalm takes a shift and becomes no longer about Solomon. It becomes about a perfect king who has ultimate authority, who has the ultimate promise of peace and prosperity, who will defend the needy and establish an eternal kingdom. Starting in verse 5, it says, Let them fear you while the sun endures, and as long as the moon throughout all generations. Right there, this is a timeless kingdom. This isn't, Solomon could not live for this long and did not. So this could not be about Solomon. May he come down like rain upon the mown grass, like showers that water the earth. In his days may the righteous flourish and abundance of peace till the moon is no more. May he also rule from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him and his enemies lick the dust. Let the kings of Tarshish and the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts. And let all kings bow before him, all nations serve him. For he will deliver the needy when he cries for help. The afflicted also, and him who has no helper. He will have compassion on the poor and needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. He will rescue their life from oppression and violence, and their blood will be precious in his life. So may he live, and may the gold of Sheba be given to him, and let them pray for him continually. Let them bless him all the day long. May there be an abundance of grain and earth on the tops of the mountains. Its fruit will wave like the cedars of Lebanon. And may those from the city flourish like vegetation of the earth. May his name endure forever. May his name increase as long as the sun shines. And let men bless themselves by him. Let all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. We see a king described as ultimate authority. He was perfectly righteous. Peace rests with him and prosperity is in his hand. He utterly protects the powerless and is swift to do justice. This is King Jesus. This is the kind of king whom we submit to and receive authority by. But let me warn you that Jesus expects full submission. You don't get to come to Jesus and think of him merely as a great teacher or anything like that. You don't get to treat him as if he is your advisor 
or a, a king of a foreign country who is in equal standing with you to give you maybe some advice here and there. It's natural for us to resist his lordship, but we must wrestle with it. We must come to terms with it. We must learn to submit to his kingship so that we can have freedom from our dead works. We were created to be the vice regents of his glory through the works that he prepared for us. In Ephesians, as we've been studying that before this, uh, before this series began, when we were in Ephesians 2, we saw um, in, in chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, which is probably a life verse for many of us in this room, where it talks about we were not we are not saved by our works, that those can never do anything to save us, but we are called to do the good works. We are called to them. And God prepared them. He laid the foundation for those good works way before him. This means he's done all the legwork. All the things that you are called to, whatever your calling is, Jesus has laid the foundation for you. He has set you up for success. And the power of Jesus' rule and reign rests with him. But he planned to do it in such a way where he put it into effect through us. Before ever speaking the words, let there be light. Before ever creating the world before creating us. He had all of the works, the good works, the things that you were called to, planned and prepared, and then said, let there be light. This ought to give you an incredible sense of peace. You know, as a parent, you might strive to be the very best parent ever, and that's a good ambition. If you are an owner of a company, you might strive to be the future CEO of a Fortune 500 company that is wonderfully successful. And that's a lot of hard, 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 hard work. And it requires a lot of great stewardship and these sort of things. You might be a minister to those who are needy, such as Simon and Sandra, who minister to the homeless. And you might seek to be the next Mother Teresa. And that is, again, a good ambition. And you might be a wise counselor that your friends come to and you could have the ambition to become the advisor to the president. So let me reassure you, you are already approved of by God. You might be utterly unremarkable in every way and forgotten by history, but you'll never be forgotten by Jesus. And if you submit to his kingship, you will find that all of his authority and his power that rests with him and him alone will be granted to you to do the works that he has called you to do. And they'll take you wherever he wills. And see, this brings us to another point of peace, of contentment that we can have that says all the circumstances that you ever find yourself in life, whether they be wonderful and majestic or they be incredibly trying, and disrupting to your soul. Whatever the circumstances of your life are, they are willed for you by God. 
not for your destruction, but for your upbuilding, for your good. So that your life, the way that you live and reign, would bring glory to King Jesus. So that people would, through your service, through your kingship, in your own sphere of influence, would see the King of Kings. Sometimes we don't like the circumstances he brings us into. I've been in many seasons of want and of need, or we don't know how we're going to pay the bills. And in all those times, Jesus has never failed us. And we have been able to look to him and receive the goodness and grace that can only come from him. Whatever it might be, whatever situation and circumstance you are in, if you are truly submitted to the kingship of Jesus, You are set free from the enslavement of the outcome of your works. And can rest in knowing that whatever comes is his will for you. And this is our great final hope. That Jesus would come and return to earth in his second coming and utterly fulfill Psalm 72. That we would live in a fully realized kingdom of heaven where the mountaintops are covered in grain and, and waving peacefully, where wars are no more, that oppression has ceased, that anyone who has a need merely cry out and be met by Jesus to have aid given, that there would be perfect justice, that righteousness, will someday be the standard, not the exception. Jesus came as a baby to die so that he can reign in that kingdom. Let us bow to him. Heavenly Father, we thank you. You sent us a baby, a baby who lived who grew up to live a perfect life, never once with sin attributed to him, never once failing any of your commands, who lived a life of perfect submission to your will while having all the authority of God for our sake, never took it upon himself and died. Died a perfect redeeming death so that we might live and be with him in his kingdom. And that he would be king over us. Reveal to us in our hearts where we have bowed to something else other than Jesus. And show us the way of repentance so that we might be healed. And rightly restored to the throne underneath him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.